0: Radio land, podcast bill, and all the ships at sea. My name is Kate Wolf, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. Joining me today is my co-host, Medea Ocher. She's the managing editor at LARB. Hi, Kate. I'm happy to be here. Hi. This is the gift
1: show. This is the gift show. I'm so excited to talk about gifts that we're going to be getting and giving. I don't want to give any gifts. I just want to get... What's the best gift you've ever gotten? That's a hard question. Okay, last year, I received tickets. This is going to sound so nerdy, but I received tickets to a Joanna Newsom concert. Mm -hmm. And the small college student in me that I thought I had left behind just started crying. (laughs) (laughs) I know, and I hadn't listened to her in years, but I was so moved and excited by that gift. Mm. So that was by far the best gift I ever received. Wow. Yeah. I don't know if any other gift had made me cry before. Because you were so surprised by the tickets, or why were you crying? I was surprised by the tickets. I think it was also, I was such a deep, deep lover and fan. Ah, I see. Ten years ago of Joanna. And that girl was just so excited. And so that was the best gift. How about you? What was the best gift you ever received? Oh, the best gift...
0: Recently, my husband's been making me a lot of art about our dog. So this year, he framed this drawing that he made of our dog in its bed. That was my birthday gift. And a couple of years ago, he took my little dog's paws and put them in cement. So I have a little imprint of his paws. And then another year, he made a sculpture of my dog where he drew both of us reflected in its eyes.
1: Oh, my God. I, I cried. Wow. I certainly cried at that. Yeah. Actually, the other great gift that I got is related to your great gift, which is my partner gave me a book called Cuties, Dummies and Nerds, Mm. which is what I call our dog. (laughs) And inside are photographs of various dogs and a guessing game as to which one is a cutie, dummy or a nerd. Uh And I really appreciated that gift also. Kate, what is the worst gift you have ever gotten?
0: I was trying to think about this, and I don't think I've gotten that many bad gifts ever, really. That's but, very lucky. But I was thinking about this one time my parents gave me the box set of Sex in the City. <gasps> and this was before people really into binge-watching. So I didn't know what it was, but I really binge-watched the entire, like, four or five, six seasons of Sex in the City for weeks on end alone in my apartment when I was in my early 20s, and it just got really unhealthy. So This sounds like a good gift. <laughs> <laughs> I had to give it away. Really? I, had, I couldn't trust myself with it, so I had to give it to friends, and then they got mad at me that I had given it to them because the same thing happened. So I think I lost some brain cells during that time. It was like time, the ring video. Yeah,
1: it really. <laughs> but were you already a big fan of Sex in the City? And so um, your parents were like, you know what she's going to love. It's
0: kind of like a dirty pleasure, so yeah. you're not really supposed to acknowledge that. It's
1: private. How about you? My worst gift? There are many. My family won't listen to this, and they don't speak English anyway, so it doesn't matter. But my grandmother, a little while ago, gave me special sheets Ooh. for my marriage bed <laughs> 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 What well, that had a big rose printed on them. And pearls and said, I love you in giant letters. But they felt like potato sacks. If they were soft, I would not have minded, even though it was an appropriate suggestion. But they felt terrible. That was a very bad one. And when I was 11, she gave me a giant dresser. And I cried for weeks Mm -hmm. and made them take it out of my room.
0: Oh, because you were scared of the dresser. I
1: just didn't want it. I didn't know where it had come from. And Mm -hmm. it was so big. My room was so small. Fingers crossed for this year. Yeah, no bad gifts this year. Exactly. That is a great idea.
0: This is our gift edition. And because of certain world events that happened recently on November 8th, we decided to frame the show a little differently. So we're not going to be talking about books that we could be giving. The current political situation made us rethink what we might mean when we say gifts, what we could possibly give to people we love or even just our fellow citizens. So we're going to be talking to different local organizations.
1: Helping us rethink our gift giving this year, we will be speaking with Adrienne Martinez, staff attorney at Earth Justice, Adriana Wong, staff attorney at the ACLU Foundation of Southern California, and finally Shahid Batar, who is also a lawyer and works for the Electronic Frontier Foundation. They'll help us rethink our gift-giving this holiday season. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. are speaking with Adrian Martinez, who is a staff attorney at Earth Justice. He's based in Los Angeles. So he's local, which is very nice to know. Adrian, would you tell us a little bit about the organization that you work for and what you do for Earth Justice?
2: Yeah. So I work for an organization called Earth Justice, and we're a nonprofit environmental law firm. Uh, We're based in San Francisco, but we have offices throughout the nation, including in Los Angeles. We work to provide legal services to other environmental groups, community groups, and other folks who are fighting some of the largest environmental battles in the nation, but also important local battles to clean up their communities and clean up the environment generally.
0: And what are you personally focusing on right now for Earth Justice?
2: Yeah, so our Los Angeles office has a pretty specific focus. We work on improving air quality. Obviously, we live in the smog capital of the United States, and so the attorneys that are working for justice down here are spending a lot of time cleaning up the various industries that are the root cause of this air pollution. We also work a lot with local community groups and residents to... Kind of push back against other types of industries that are harming their communities. We do a lot of work on oil and gas, especially urban oil drilling in Los Angeles. So th- those are kind of the issues we're really focusing on.
1: Now that you mention oil and gas, this sounds like it's going to be an inappropriate question, but it's not. What do you think about Trump's choice for Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson, Exxon CEO?
2: Yeah, I mean, up and down the cabinet, we're Seeing that President elect Trump is filling it with people who deny climate change and are very tied to energy companies, we have a lot of concern about that. We think the impacts of this are going to be felt all over the nation and world. And I think the thing for us, it really means we need to spend a lot of time on the local level because I think the federal government's not going to be an ally in tackling these really important challenges like cleaning up the air and fighting harmful climate change.
0: I recently saw an op-ed in the New York Times about air quality, that one way America was going to be quote-unquote great again was going back to 1970s, 1960s air quality standards. Is there any bar that's set that can't be revoked or is it possible to change regulation that much that that's possible across the country?
2: Yeah, so the Clean Air Act is a very strong law, and if the Trump administration were to try to unravel it, they'd have to do so based on scientific evidence. So at least now the law is set in a strong way where the air quality standards are set based on the best scientific evidence available. We hope that there won't be efforts to harm regular breathers throughout the country by rolling back air quality standards and engaging in various activities to make our regulations less health protective. But we're spending a lot of time and effort monitoring that and we will continue and probably spend a lot more time under the Trump administration making sure that we express how important these clean air laws and regulations are. And I think too many children have asthma, too many adults have asthma, too many people are dying prematurely just from breathing poor air quality, and the stakes are too, too great to allow the Trump administration to dismantle um, all the clean air progress we've made to date.
1: Right. What are some practical things people can do in their everyday lives to offset, even if it's a little bit, the planned sort of climate denial policies that might come into play? <laughs>
2: Yeah, so I I assume a lot of the listeners are in Southern California. I think we have a lot of elected leaders on the local and state level who really want to tackle these tough environmental challenges. I think weighing into them when they're doing something you like, like cleaning the air or addressing climate change, I think also weighing in when, you know, entities are doing the wrong thing is important. I think on the local level, we're seeing a lot of clean energy. It's becoming way more affordable. And I think people in their homes to try to implement as much of this clean energy and reduction in energy use as possible, whether it's changing out light bulbs or looking into how you can install solar if you're a homeowner or participate in other programs if you're a renter to kind of offset the emissions from energy use.
1: And is there something in that list thank you for giving it to us, that is giving you hope for a planet right now, or should we just be in a state of despair and panic, which is what I am in?
2: I was really excited to hear the response from Governor Brown and the highest leaders of the state Senate and Assembly, Kevin DeLeon and Anthony Rendon, that they're really going to push back on attempts to gut environmental protections I think that's heartening to hear and I think what we need to do is give these elected leaders throughout California our support for adopting bold policies that will address these important issues and I think we're going to see a shift to really trying to make progress on the local level and I think California in particular the Los Angeles region is perfectly poised to be a real champion in pushing clean energy, clean technologies that address our dual threat of air quality and climate change.
0: That's great, and so in that respect, is there any legislation coming up that we should be aware of and keep our eye on and advocate for?
2: Yeah, so I think this next legislative session, there'll be a lot on clean energy, there'll be a lot on clean transportation, efforts to really increase the number of zero tailpipe emission vehicles on the road, such as cars and trucks. So I think, you know, really expressing support for those types of measures, because those are going to be pretty vital to an area like Los Angeles to meet air quality standards and breathe clean air. I think if there are attempts to roll back environmental protections at the federal level, I think environmental groups like Earth Justice will call on California legislators to pass laws to protect Californians from those rollbacks so I think people should really monitor those and I think those are kind of the the big things I mean I think you can't underestimate how important it is to get calls into you know even the most local legislators, like our air quality regulators, getting calls into a very local level is very important. So we need to really amplify our concerns on the environment. And I hope this election is a call to action that, you know, we need to double down on our expressing our desire for a clean environment.
0: Yeah. And do you have any other suggestions of how listeners can help in terms of reaching out to representatives or organizing, things to just really watch in these upcoming years, I guess, unfortunately to say. What else can we do just in a volunteer level, and a practical level?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's going to be calls to make calls or send emails or even tweet to your legislators, and I think people need to do it. it. You know, my discussions with people in legislative offices, when people are calling them, asking them to support some specific legislation, or oppose a piece of legislation, that 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 matters. And you know, I think that we really need to become more and more engaged, we need to get to know who our legislators are on the state level and the local level, level, like city council members, county board of supervisors, and we need to be vocal. I think now's not the time to stay quiet. I know a lot of people are frustrated and there's a lot of despair out there. About who's being put in charge in Washington, but I think we really need to let our local leaders know we've got their back that they can push forward innovative and important environmental policies.
1: That's very good to know. Do you have a strategy in terms of urging friends and family to be vocal and involved? Do you engage with them sort of in conversation? Do you just... Bug them as much as possible? Do you record something and send it to their house where they play it over and over and they remember to call their legislator?
2: I mean, I think you can use tools as basic as email. I think, you know, discussions around the dinner table, give your friends and family a call. And I think, you know, I've found that when people are given a specific action, and they understand how to take that action, hey, call this person, tell them this, I think you'll see that people are responsive. And I think that's going to be pretty vital. We're going to see a lot of threats to values we believe in, including the value of a clean environment. And I think we're going to need to make sure people are acting, and we're going to need to let our legislators locally know that fighting back against poor environmental policies and health policies and clean air policies is antithetical to what it means to be a Californian.
0: That's great. Just to close, I wondered if there are any, I mean, I know there's so many organizations that help protect the environment, and I'm always unclear, um, you know, which ones to support. Do you have any recommendations beyond earth justice for places that do a great job and that we should all be paying attention to and supporting?
2: Yeah, I really want to make a plug to some of the really local organizations. I think what we've found is we need to support community-based and grassroots groups that are doing work on the local level. In the Los Angeles region, we have some really fantastic organizations like East Yard Communities for Environmental Justice, Communities for a Better Environment, the Center for Community Action and Environmental Justice and groups like the Long Beach Alliance for Children with Asthma. Mm -hmm. There's just almost too many to name. And I think we really, you know, in addition to supporting the large national organizations like Earth Justice and Sierra Club, we need to make sure we're supporting groups that are on the ground working um, with people on a very local neighborhood level because I think we're going to see a lot of progress there in the Los Angeles region, and we need to make sure those groups have support.
1: Thank you so much, Adrian, for joining us for this interview and for our gift-giving show and helping us rethink how we give gifts this season. Can you also give us some information on how people can find out more about Earth Justice?
2: Yes. So you can go to www.earthjustice, all one word, org, and you can find out a lot of information about Earth Justice. You can get updates on our work. And, you know, we even have a blog and other ways to take action at that website.
1: Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
1: You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Coming to you from Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. And we just wanted to remind you to become a member of the Los Angeles Review of Books and donate to our fund drive. You can go to our website, which is LReviewOfBooks.org, and just hit the donate button. Now back to LARB Radio's special holiday gift show.
0: With Adriana Wong. She's a staff attorney for the ACLU Foundation of Southern California. Thanks for being here, Adriana. Everyone I'm sure is familiar to some degree with the ACLU, but maybe you could just remind us briefly what it is and tell us a little bit about what you do there.
3: Sure. So the ACLU is a national organization that works to defend civil liberties and civil rights for everybody in this country. The ACLU of Southern California is the Southern California regional affiliate of the national network of organizations, but like the national network, we work to defend civil rights and civil liberties, but our focus is on our local communities here in Southern California.
1: Um, Would you tell us a little bit about your job there?
3: Sure. I'm a staff attorney, which, you know, usually people take to mean that I primarily do our work in the courts, and I do do a lot of work with litigation, but we also do a lot of work that I think people don't normally think of when they think of the ACLU, so we do a lot of policy advocacy. We do a lot of public education work. We go out in the community and talk to people about what their rights are. We create materials that help us do that, and we try and craft state and local policies that we think best reflect the principles in the Constitution and generally what we think of as a free and inclusive society.
0: Okay, so there's been a real outpouring of support for the ACLU after the election. How are you feeling now, post-election? Are you working on the same things, or are you working on anything more related to the current political climate?
3: Well, we're we're really busy. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) (laughs) And part of that is because of the amazing and inspirational support that folks have been expressing and offering for the organization, we're doing a lot of work just to figure out how to best engage people and how to best use the time and skills that that people have been offering to us. But certainly there is a lot of work to be done preparing for the next four years if we are to take the president-elect at his word for the kinds of policies that he's going to enact. So a lot of what we're doing is assessing what we would need to do to defend the rights of the people in our communities if those policies were to take effect. So the most obvious example would be, you know, the platform point of mass deportations. Well, how can we protect people's due process rights? How can we prevent families from being torn apart if that really were going to be a policy that the next administration is going to pursue. So there's a lot of work that we're doing around addressing all those policy points.
1: That's actually what we wanted to ask you about next, because we were anticipating precisely that issue coming up. So what kind of conversations do you think you're really having at this point about immigration or any upcoming immigration policies that you anticipate taking effect within the coming years?
3: Well, it's interesting being in California because I don't know if you saw the legislature issue a statement after the recent election affirming that California is an inclusive state that we want to and respect our immigrant communities here. So I think a lot of what we are going to be doing is promoting affirmative policies and affirmative legislation on the state and local levels to make sure that people are not deported or pulled into deportation proceedings on the expedited scale, um, expedited time that President-elect Trump has been talking about implementing. So some of that will be saying our local law enforcement are going to keep doing the job of what local law enforcement should do, which is protecting and serving our communities and not engaging in federal immigration enforcement. That's part of it. Another part of it, I think, is really doing public education and letting people know what their rights are with respect to encounters with immigration enforcement officers, what their Fourth Amendment rights are, what to do if immigration and customs enforcement shows up at your door. So that's something else that we're looking at.
0: Is there a simple answer about what people should do if customs or immigration shows up at their door?
3: Well, your Fourth Amendment rights still apply. So the first thing that everyone should ask if any kind of law enforcement shows up at their door is to see a warrant.
0: That's great. And so I just wondered, since California has a more innovative approach now to immigration compared to the incoming administration, are there any upcoming bills or laws that we should keep an eye out for that could refine immigration policies even more in California to be more equal and fair?
3: Absolutely. So there was just a bill introduced called the shorthand is called the Values Act. And I would encourage everybody to look it up and to call their state legislators to urge them to support it.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about that bill?
3: Sure. It basically does what I was suggesting you would be advocating for, which is clarifying that the role of our state and local law enforcement officers is to mm-hmm. protect and serve our communities protect us from crime and not to advance any sort of dragnet mass deportation efforts, and so that law would clarify that. There are already a lot of ways in which local law enforcement willingly or unwillingly are sort of sucked into the federal immigration enforcement apparatus. That's been taking place through the Obama administration. So the Values Act really seeks to preemptively, prophylactically address those ways that police have been entangled with federal law enforcement so that when the new administration takes power, those mechanisms can't be further abused.
1: And just a quick clarification about your suggestion to call local officials. Would you explain why that might be useful and how one might do it, just sort of the quickest way you can?
3: Sure. So, you can call the governor. Or you can call your local assembly person and you can encourage them to sign on to the bill and force the governor to sign it and not veto it. But what that mm-hmm. really expresses is that people are paying attention and uh-huh. that's something that their constituencies care about. And what we've heard time and time again is that legislators really do respond to those personal phone calls. That's you know, great to know. You can, support. you can tweet and support. You can do letter writing campaigns. You can write letters to the editor about the importance of this kind of legislation. But in terms of getting legislation passed, it really does make a difference to call your local something.
0: Great. And are there any other nonprofits or organizations that you recommend our listeners pay attention to or support in regards to immigration?
3: We're fortunate in California that there are so many good organizations. The ACLU does impact work. We do litigation and legislative work, but there are also a lot of organizations that we partner with that do more grassroots work. So I'm just thinking, let's see. Let me say this. I think it, I would suggest that people look at the grassroots organizations in their particular region because we work across several counties with grassroots organizations in those counties. but. If you're looking at Los Angeles in particular, I would suggest you look at the uh, National Day Labor Organization Network and the California policy. The problem is that I know them all by their acronyms. I see, I see. <laughs> their full <laughs> names. Here, what piece? Immigrant Policy Coalition, I think
1: is one of them. <laughs> that sounds like a good guess. Yeah. <laughs> so um, our final question, this is our holiday show, and we are thinking about gift-giving and um, reconsidering what gift-giving might look like in our current political climate. And so we wanted to ask you, how might our listeners help your organization do the work that you do? And you've already given us a number of options, which is calling our legislators, tweeting, et cetera. But what other ways can we become engaged?
3: The main way I would recommend that people who want to be engaged in an intentional way get engaged is to email us at action at aclusocal.org. You can sign up there to volunteer with us to be put on a mailing list that will notify you about actions that we're recommending people take or asking people to take at a particularly pivotal times. So that can involve asking you to come out to a rally or a demonstration in support of a particular measure or in support of a particular community that's hopefully not being targeted telling you when legislation is being considered so that you can call your legislator at an important time that sort of thing. So again, that's action at aclusocal.org. You can also just become a member. It's fun. You get a little card that says you're a card-carrying member of the ACLU. You can get that for someone else in your family if you want to do that for them. You can also donate to us on our webpage, aclusocal.org. And you can also make a donation in tribute or in honor of somebody. So again, you can sort of donate as a gift to somebody else if that's something you want to do around the
1: holidays. That's great. Thank you so much, Adriana, for talking with us. Thank you. No problem. We are speaking with Shahid Bhutar, a constitutional lawyer working for the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Shahid leads the Electronic Frontier Foundation's grassroots and student outreach efforts. Thank you, Shahid, for joining us.
4: Thanks so much for having me.
0: So, Shahid, maybe you could—I had actually never heard of your organization before, so I'd love for you to just tell us a little bit about it and more about your role there. Sure.
4: EFF was founded in 1990 in the very early days of the Internet by a collection of people who helped pioneer it. And the goal of the organization is to defend the online sphere and civil liberties online. And as increasingly as our world becomes more and more networked and more and more our forums to engage each other become more and more digital, digital civil liberties are increasingly civil liberties. And so we work to defend those values through a variety of ways. We have an impact litigation team that, for instance, has two of the flagship cases challenging the NSA dragnet in federal court. We have a technology team that, for instance, engineers privacy-protecting tools that anyone can download and implement for free. In fact, we just released a new one today, Privacy Badger 2.0. Then we have an activism team that works with grassroots networks and policymakers at the local, state, and federal level to not only defend, for instance, freedom of thought and conscience in the face of a mass surveillance regime, but also popular access to culture, like film and video in the face of a corporate's rights holder regime that unfortunately privileges corporate profits usually over, for instance, innovation or culture.
1: Wow, you are doing so much. That is a very impressive list. Thank you for your work. And what are you personally focusing on right now?
4: So my role at EFF, I'm the director of grassroots advocacy. So my particular focus is on working with our most engaged supporters. And those include students who are organizing campus groups, community members all around the country who are organizing at the community level as well as hacker spaces and maker spaces, basically offline local networks that are coming together in real life in meet space, as some mm-hmm. people might call it, to promote the rights that we all share an interest in online. You know, they look like, for instance, the Oakland Privacy Working Group, which has fought several battles at the city council and county board level in Alameda County and in Oakland to defend residents of that city from what amounts to mass surveillance by local police, which is increasingly a problem everywhere. Wow. Uh, and it also includes, for instance, at Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo, there's a student group, White Hat, which in the Access to Culture arena, managed to install in a campus library, a kiosk through which students can download Creative Commons or open license film and video for free. And so it's oh. sort of like, it spans a very wide range of ways to engage. And one of our primary focuses at the moment is what we call the C-Cops Campaign. That's an acronym that stands for Community Control Over Mm -hmm. Police Surveillance. And it's basically a campaign active at the moment in about two dozen cities around the country through which local elected officials like city council people are being encouraged by their constituents to adopt reforms of the sort. This was enacted in Santa Clara County, San Jose Mm -hmm. earlier this year. And what the reform basically does is force police departments that want to buy surveillance equipment to go through a public process, whereas at the moment that tends to be a secret process, which oh. begets to any number of predictable abuses.
0: Speaking of surveillance, I think we, the NSA has already played you know, a large role in the current administration, and I think we're all thinking about what might happen in the Trump age. So could you tell us you know, anything you're anticipating or troubleshooting for currently?
4: Yeah, I mean, one of the biggest concerns with the incoming administration is the possibility, and to some extent, it's a credit to the current administration, and even perhaps its predecessor, that these tools were not politicized in the way that they might be going forward. And for years, I've heard people respond to, for instance, the Snowden revelations or the preceding concerns about mass surveillance with this sort of false sense of security and institutional checks and balances Right, You'll hear a lot of people pretend, for instance, that whistleblowers in the intelligence community have a right to come forward without being retaliated against, and that's just not true. People will pretend that Congress is conducting effective oversight, and that hasn't been true in something like 20 years with respect to the intelligence agencies. People will pretend that the federal courts are very vigilant about guarding Fourth Amendment and First Amendment protections to, for instance, engage in organizational behavior with your local allies to raise your voices peacefully or assemble peacefully to petition the government for redresses and grievances, all these sorts of the checks and balances we rely upon to guard our rights are increasingly at risk. And the prospect of, for instance, the FBI's corrupt reign of intimidation and terror waged under the direction of J. Edgar Hoover, the prospect of that paradigm being repeated in an era with mass surveillance tools the likes of which Hoover could only have dreamed, and quite frankly, you know, he would have had to have had a pretty vivid imagination to even dream of the contemporary tools, it should terrify anyone. And one of the things here to particularly grip is that I hear a lot of people that mistake the value opposed to surveillance as privacy. And yes, obviously, surveillance undermines privacy, but it's much more than that. I think what people are waking up to in the incoming reality is the prospect that surveillance not only offends privacy, but it offends autonomy, particularly when the specter presents itself of these tools being used to suppress political dissent. And it's worth remembering that surveillance has always been used that way in the United States, despite our ideals, and that history should inform the way we all engage the future.
1: Speaking of that, we also wanted to ask you what you think about net neutrality and if you expect the Trump administration to attack net neutrality
4: going forward. We fear fear it might. Uh, You know, the victory for net neutrality before the Federal Communications Commission under the Obama administration was, quite frankly, one of the most encouraging aspects, I think, of the last eight years, the commitment to retain, basically, infrastructural quality on the internet. And in net neutrality, people will describe it as An opportunity for internet service providers or other points in the infrastructural chain to monetize their infrastructure. It is rarely presented, I think, by those voices in terms of what it basically is, which is the destruction of the internet as we know it. If we lose net neutrality, the internet ceases to become an open platform to which anyone has equal access. That has been the basis for its success as a social tool that has increasingly brought humanity together. When we lose the opportunity for new entrants to compete for traffic on equal terms with established information providers, a lot goes out the window, particularly the opportunity for the internet to remain the engine of innovation and progress and prosperity that it has been.
0: And what are some things that we can do as citizens to push for net neutrality, for instance?
4: I think the biggest thing that anyone can do about these issues is to share information. And there's lots of different ways to do that. So it just so happens that we live in an age of digital social media and those present opportunities to share information. You know, we can, of course, share perhaps what you might've had for breakfast or share your feelings or anything else, but sharing information at least through those sorts of easily accessible online channels. But I would go further, I think it's really important for people to share information in real life face-to-face with people near them. And so that looks like a couple different things. It looks like talking about the issues that concern you with your friends and your family and your acquaintances and your colleagues. And, you know, those don't have to be contentious conversations, right? Even if it's uncomfortable to discuss public policy, just to ensure that discourse survives is important in itself. Beyond that, though, talking to people in real life creates opportunities, namely among other things, the opportunity to choose a handful of allies and do something together. And the easiest thing that someone can do, whatever the set of issues is that you particularly care about to get to make a meaningful difference, is to pull together three friends, find a space, screen a documentary, and invite everyone you know. And at the end of that process, you might have a couple dozen people who share your concerns, who you've identified as allies, who you can then do other things with. And a couple dozen people can do things that no small group can. People, I think, often overestimate the proportion of a population that has to engage in a social movement for its aims to find reflection in reality. You know, you look back in the civil rights movement, it's Mm. probably a fair guess to say that no more than 5% of the American population was ever actively supportive. Mm. I think, you know, at the moment, when people think about what the Trump administration portends, the social forces that have sort of galvanized around it it's a rabbit we could chase. The point I guess I'm making here is that pulling people together offline in real space to have live conversations about issues that matter to them with other human beings, not behind the wall of anonymity that social media enables, not behind the comfort of a screen, but in real life with faces and personalities, that's incredibly, incredibly important. And you know, one of the reasons, quite frankly, I think that we are in this mess as a civilization is that we have largely abandoned that project. There are any number of tools that we can avail ourselves of to extend our voices, but it's still very important to have live conversations. And I think spreading information, whether that's online, whether that's in real life in the microcosm with individuals, or whether that's in real life at scale by organizing with other people to bring people together or display creative displays of dissent or write op-eds or petition your local city council people. These are all opportunities that anyone can avail themselves of. And the last thing I'd say there is that while I think it's really hard sometimes to look at these questions of national significance and even international significance and feel disempowered, the two antidotes to despair, which I think is you know, one of our greatest threats as a movement for rights of any kind, despair is one of our greatest threats. And the two antidotes to it, I would always cite, are action and community. And doing something to give voice to your concerns is its own reward, and as is pulling together people to share time and space. And when you couple those things with ideals and values and principles, there's immense opportunity there.
1: Thank you for saying that. That is, in fact, very encouraging to hear. I also wanted to ask you about, we know that you are, aside from the work that you do, also a poet and a musician. I am. And how do you see the role of Art or writing, and perhaps your own art and writing and music playing a role in what we just discussed?
4: That's a great question. I'm really glad you asked. I mean, I think art generally is the reflection of people's experiences and minds and feelings. And, you know, the more and more these sorts of big picture issues, like, for instance, the specter of being watched all the time and what that means for one's own autonomy or freedom of expression. These kinds of principles, you can talk about them, but art can convey what is at stake in a way that discourse has a really hard time doing. You know, there's an art exhibit at the moment that is active in Manhattan mm-hmm. called the Glass Room, and it's a series of art exhibits that basically depict different dimensions of surveillance. and I, I haven't had the opportunity to go, but I've heard from many people that it's an illuminating experience. You know, similarly, think about Citizen Four as a piece of art, or mm-hmm. You know, I go back, for instance, to the 60s counterculture and the, the presence and role that folk music played in not only bringing people together and helping those social networks congeal, but also, you know, embedded in that era's music was a great deal of explicit political consciousness. And the hip-hop generation, similarly, you know, the first generation of hip-hop before it became commercialized was very, very thoughtfully reflective of the daily concerns of marginalized people in their communities, and that's what art has always been. That's what good art remains. I fear that, like a great many other things, you know, we have sort of lost the commitment to quality in our civilization as we have raced to embrace reward, perhaps, but I, yeah. I do think of the role of artists in any movement is crucial. I think about in the <clears throat> immigrant rights movement, there's been a number of very prolific artists, Fabiana Rodriguez, Cesar Maxi come to mind, in the Black Lives Matter movement, there are some very prolific artists and the art speaks not only to the heart rather than only the head, but it also is accessible in a way that policy discourse can oftentimes not be. Yes, And I think that there's a piece worth pressing on here. You know, there is the illusion occasionally that, a piece of art that doesn't address a serious issue is not in itself political, mm-hmm. but it's worth remembering that like everything is a political choice, right? And so a piece of art, for instance, that doesn't take a position is itself political in a deferential way. Mm-hmm. And that flip, I think, is really important for content producers of all kinds, be they filmmakers or musicians or poets or writers. You know, there are opportunities to, to speak our concerns through our art Or there are opportunities to distract people from our concerns, right? Right. And I think that's much of what passes for culture today is ultimately a distraction. And you know, maybe that's also nothing new. But I, you know, to to answer your question, I think the role of art in social movements of all kinds is crucial, and in the digital rights movement, no less. Right.
0: So people who are feeling despair about making art shouldn't give up and keep doing it.
4: Absolutely. Yeah. One way to think of it too is, you know, if you think about who your audiences are your audience can be the mass public, your audience can be the international community, your audience can be the historical record. I mean, for me as an artist, it's as much about expressing myself and leaving a popcorn trail behind me as it Mm -hmm. is of trying to influence people in the present time slice. And I think recognizing the ways, particularly with the rise of the internet, that audiences can emerge from anywhere, this this is a great time to be an artist. And especially with the landscape and spectrum of concerns that are, I think more and more people are sharing in the light of recent events. It's like not only is it a, an opportune time from a technology and audience accessibility time to be an artist, but it's an incredibly important time to be an artist who is willing to speak truth to power.
1: Yes. Thank you again. One last question is this is our gift giving episode and we are working on sort of rethinking the way that gift giving might look This coming season, we were wondering how might our listeners help the artists, maybe that you mentioned, the movements that you mentioned, the organization you work for. What is a way in which we can think of gift giving in our current political context?
4: Right on. Well, maybe I'd take a step back and say that people often think of giving gifts in an individual way. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the same way that coming together with people in real life can beget advocacy opportunities, there's a way to pool resources with people who share concerns with you, they can make a mountain of difference you know, beyond what an individual can. I'll take, for instance, there's a friend of mine who is organizing disco parties for an unnamed political candidate here in San Francisco. This spring, he'd been in town for months before he moved here. And for several months in 2016, in the spring of 2016, my impression was that this person who was new to the area he was living in was organizing one of the largest, most consistent sources of donations to that campaign. And so to pull people together in real space to do a pass the hat, throw $5 in, -hmm. and then contributing that to an organization, maybe addressing the issues, for instance, that are depicted in the documentary you might watch. Just to throw a few out there that do really great work, we certainly uh, invite any support at the Electronic Frontier Foundation for people concerned about digital rights. There are any number of other organizations out there that do incredibly important work. I think about the Government Accountability Project which supports government whistleblowers, the Freedom of the Press Foundation, which supports whistleblowers and investigative journalists, the Bill of Rights Defense Committee, which supports grassroots activists, the ACLU, which is very prolific in the courts. These are all important organizations to sustain, particularly given that all of these organizations have been struggling on the basis of their current budgets to deal with the existing landscape of threats. Those threats just expanded, and our resources have not. And so there's a really compelling opportunity for people who care about these values to invest in your concerns. And I should mention also the Center for Constitutional Rights, which does very important work at the intersection of detention and torture. All of these organizations are national. And while supporting national work is, is very important, it's at least as important, if not more so, to support local work, whether that's your local food bank, whether that's an immigrant rights coalition in your neighborhood looking for The smaller the network or the group that you're supporting, the more effective and leveraged your support will be. And I think there's a a frequent tendency to, whether it's in policy or whether it's in fundraising, to focus on the national and overlook Mm -hmm. the local. And, you know, there are huge opportunities both in advocacy and community organizing and in funding good work to turn the lens in your community rather than to the big names that you might hear about.
1: We have been hearing that over and over from our guests, and that's a very good reminder to have, that the local can be a focal point for everybody.
4: It's where all the innovation starts, at least, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, thank
0: you so much. You're
4: so welcome. Thank you for having me. appreciate you covering these issues. To Keep up the great work.
0: Thank you so much.
1: You too. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. I'm Medea Ocher, the co-host this week, along with Kate Wolf. Thanks to our executive producer, Gustavo Turner, our fellow producers, Kate Wolf and Erica Recordin, editorial advisor, Dinah Lenny, engineer, Ernesto Arellano, researcher, Chloe Chap, production volunteer, Jake Levins, and special thanks, as always, to Alan Minsky, no one's moral conscience, for production assistance.